Hi, I'm Marie Myers, and I grew up in a Christian family. I was really active in church. Um, I grew up in a Presbyterian church, so I was never expecting to hear God speak to me. Um, I fully believed he was in the word, uh, but I never expected to hear his voice. And then one time when I was praying, I heard this voice. It wasn't an audible voice. It wasn't my self-talk voice. And it certainly wasn't women's intuition because I don't have that. Um, but the voice said, call Doug. I kind of went, what, God? You want me to call Doug? I hadn't seen him or talked with him for about, oh, 20 years or so. And I said, okay, God, what do you want me to say to him? And there was nothing, nothing. Uh, and I thought, well, maybe this is just a test to see if I'll get up off my knees and go and walk to the phone. So I was walking down my hallway and kind of asking, God, what do you want me to say? Nothing. And so I dialed the phone and still nothing. I was kind of hoping there wouldn't be an answer and I could just leave a message. Uh, but I wasn't sure what message I would leave. So after the dial tone, there was a pickup. And as soon as the phone was picked up, God told me to tell Doug that God still loved him. I said, Doug, this is going to sound so weird, but God told me to tell you that God still loves you. He said, Marie, my divorce is going to be final, and I needed to hear that message. Then about three years ago, I got this message out of the blue through Facebook Messenger. It was from Doug. And he said, my wife and I are coming up to swim and we were wondering if we could stop by and connect up with you. So we met and then we went over to Cary Blake Park and we were walking through Cary Blake Park and his wife looked at me and said, I'm so glad you called Doug. He was planning on committing suicide and because of your call, he didn't and we were able to get married. And she said, Marie, I just wanted to thank you for calling him. It, just hearing that was so overwhelming to me that God would use me, a broken vessel, um, just a person, just a regular old person, to do something for God. And all I can say is, to God be the glory. God using regular old people like us. Well, thanks, Marie, for just a beautiful story. Uh, Marie, Maria, Mary. Uh, without a doubt, it is one of the most popular names in history. I'm wondering how many of you have come out of Roman Catholic backgrounds? 
Okay, quite a few. So obviously, if you have been in a Catholic background, you know that Mary figures very prominently. And uh, yet within Protestant churches, you find that other than Christmas, she is rarely talked about. And uh, this morning, as we are looking ahead to Easter, though, I want to give some attention to this woman, Mary, who was uniquely present not only at Jesus' birth, but who also saw him die, and who was among those who witnessed his resurrection. And so as we continue our unexpected series, I want us to think about Mary. So who was Mary? Uh, you know, for being a, a woman who has so much historical and international fame, the fact is the scripture really tells us very little about her. Uh, this comes out of Luke chapter 1. This is where we first encounter Mary. It says, The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. So what do we learn from this? Well, we find out uh, where she lived. She lived in a small town uh, named Nazareth in the region of Galilee. Uh, we know her marital status, which was she was single, never married, but she was engaged. And from that, we could deduce a few things. Uh, one is she was probably quite young, because especially in that day, women usually married in their teen years. Uh, considering where she lived and the time she lived in, Mary was most likely illiterate. There wasn't much emphasis placed on educating women, especially women who didn't have great social standing. We also learned from this that she was going to be married to a man named Joseph. Uh, we don't know much about Joseph. We're not given too much biography on him. We do know something about his trade. Uh, twice we're told that he was a tectone, which is simply a word that refers to a skilled craftsman. Now, we oftentimes think of him as a, a carpenter working with wood. He could have been a stonemason. We don't actually know that, but we know he was some kind of a skilled laborer. Whatever he did for a living, apparently, did not make him a wealthy man. Uh, we find that after Jesus was born, the, temple, the family went up to the temple to present him, as was the customary ritual for a firstborn son. And the law prescribed that when you came and, and presented a firstborn son at the temple, you were to bring a sacrifice. Normally, that would be a lamb, unless the family was too poor to afford such. And then they could bring two pigeons. And when Mary and Joseph go to the temple, guess what they bring? Pigeons. So we can deduce that Jesus grew up in a family that was not wealthy. Um, Joseph may have been skilled, but he wasn't rich. Uh, his lack of wealth could even imply that Mary herself wasn't considered the uh, most desirable catch in town. Uh, part of any engagement in that culture involved uh, the groom and the father agreeing on what was called the bride price. And uh, not to be mean, but it might be fair to say that Mary was all the bride that a cash-strapped groom could afford. If Mary wasn't seen as the most desirable bride, it, it could have been for a number of reasons. It might have been her family pedigree. Her family just didn't have great social standing. Or maybe she was the last in a large family of girls. And back in that day, 
uh, families that had lots of girls were eager to find husbands for all those girls. So, so maybe Mary, just uh, kind of luck of the draw, was the one that they were trying to get married off. Um, maybe it was something more personal. You know, they didn't have orthodontists. Maybe she didn't have good teeth. We don't know. Uh, maybe she walked kind of funny. You know, maybe she made one of those weird snorty noises when she laughed. I mean, we, we don't know. We're not told that about Mary. What I want to convey, though, is that there is nothing in Mary's story that tells us she was any more special than anyone else. In fact, the clues actually point towards someone who was very average, not exceptional. We're also informed that Joseph was a distant relative of Israel's ancient and most revered King David. Uh, but of course, at that point in Israel's history, there were a lot of people who could point back in their family tree and say, I'm a distant relative of. In fact, Mary herself may have shared that King David is my distant relative sort of relationship. Uh, in terms of Joseph's character, we find out later that Though he was poor financially, he was a man who was rich in character. Uh, when he finds out that Mary is pregnant, he quite logically concludes that it must mean that she's been unfaithful. And yet, rather than trying to protect his own reputation, rather than shaming her through a very public divorce, because in their day, the only way to break an engagement was to actually go through a divorce ceremony, uh, Joseph decided that if he had to uh, break their engagement that he was going to do it privately because he didn't want to add that social shame onto Mary. The other thing we know from this short introduction is that God chose to grace Mary in a special way. And I really do mean he chose to grace her. Uh, the angel that greeted her said, Greetings, O favored one. Uh, that Greek word that's translated as favored is the Greek word kerito, which is the same Greek word we get charis from, which is the word that we translate as grace. And so it's very fair to translate the angel's words as greetings, graced one. Greetings to you that grace has been poured out on. The emphasis isn't, Mary, you've caught God's attention because of your specialness and you've earned his favor. The, rather, the emphasis is, Mary, you are special because God has graciously chosen to pour his favor on you. God chose this young woman not because she was the most beautiful or had the best social status or had the highest intellect. The scriptures are completely silent on anything that Mary had done that deserved God's favor. She was an impoverished, inexperienced, uneducated girl from a backwater town. We don't even know if she had impeccable character. It's possible that maybe she gossiped too much with the other girls when they went to get water. Uh, maybe she got her feelings hurt easily. Maybe she was a little too sensitive. Uh, maybe she could be bossy. I mean, think about it. The first miracle that Jesus recorded is doing is, is turning water into wine, right? You remember how that story sets up. Mary's at the wedding. Apparently, she has something to do with running the wedding, and they're running out of wine, and she looks at the Son of God and says, do something. So she wasn't afraid to tell people what to do. But despite all that, <clears throat> on this one particular nondescript day, this simple peasant girl found herself greeted 
by a majestic member of the heavenly host, an angel. And his message was the most unexpected and unbelievable bit of news that she'd ever heard. It says, Behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of David forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. God was choosing to grace her in a way that she had never imagined. She would be the one who would give birth to her people's long-awaited Messiah. She was told to name him Yeshua, Joshua, the, the same name as the great leader of ancient Israel who had led the people in triumph into their promised land. Or as we pronounce it, you're to name him Jesus. Of course, there's one small problem. She was engaged, yes, but she wasn't married. So any talk about an immediate pregnancy was a little bit, you know, cart before the horse. The angel answers that question with something even more startling. The angel answered, he said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who has been called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. So the answer to the question, Mary, as to how this is going to be is that the sperm of life will not be Joseph's. The life that you're going to carry in your womb is going to be initiated by the Spirit of God. And the child will be a never-before-imagined union of God and mankind. He will truly and fully be the Son of God. He will truly and fully be the Son of Man. And just in case Mary can't wrap her mind around what she's being told, uh, the angel says, um, your cousin Elizabeth, old Elizabeth, who lives about 80 miles away, um, she actually is going to have a child. The old woman who has never born children is pregnant. Mary, God can do anything. So what do you say to news like that? Well, here's what Mary said. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. If there's anything noteworthy about Mary, it is right there in that simple statement. Mary believed God. Did she still have questions? She must have had a ton. In fact, if you want, here's an exercise for this afternoon. Try making a list of all the questions you would have had if you were Mary and an angel showed up and gave you this message. It should be a fairly lengthy list, I do believe. But despite the questions swirling in her mind, her heart was moved to trust God and to leave the details with him. Mary was this stellar example of what Hebrews talks about. Hebrews 11:6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Mary had faith and it was because of that simple act that she pleased God, and he was pleased to grace her. 
And it reminds me of, if you've been around, you'll know one of my favorite passages of the scripture it comes out of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at verses 26 and 27. Paul says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God was pleased to use a simple girl like Mary to astound the world. God is pleased to use you and me too, just like he used Mary, just like he used Marie. Not because we are impressive, but because he is full of grace. A couple of cool facts about Mary that maybe you've never given thought to. When you read the Gospel of Luke, I am positive that in the early chapters, you're actually reading the Gospel of Mary. What do I mean by that? Well, Luke tells us right at the outset of his narrative that he had carefully researched the story. Luke 1.3, he said, It seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account. So Luke had access to eyewitnesses. He had listened to them telling their stories, and he finally had decided to compile it all together. And the most detailed information we have about Jesus' birth and his growing up, there's not a lot, but the most detailed information we have is all in Luke's gospel. That's where we hear about the angel appearing to Mary. We hear about Mary's conversation with her cousin Elizabeth. Uh, there's the famous Christmas story about this young couple in a stable because there was no room for them in the inn. We learn about the shepherds who came this, paid this surprise visit. We get the story of Jesus' parents taking him to Jerusalem at age 12. All of that happens in Luke's gospel. And who was it that knew all of those stories? Who was there? Who could have told Luke about these things? Twice Luke mentions something really interesting. Look at this from Luke 2, from the Christmas story. All who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them, but Mary treasured up all these things pondering them in her heart. Luke 2.51, his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. You can see what I'm driving at, right? The only way that Luke knew what a mother had been treasuring and pondering in her heart was if that mother told him. So in a very real way, I think in Luke's gospel, we see God using Mary to convey to us part of the story of her amazing son. Here's something else. Maybe you've never seen it before, but Mary keeps showing up in the story of Jesus. Mary doesn't just show up in the Christmas story. Uh, we find her with him at the start of his ministry when, as I already alluded to, she asks him to do something about the shortage of wine at the wedding. Uh, we find her later at one of the homes among the crowd of people who had come to hear him teach. John tells us that Mary was at the foot of the cross as Jesus was dying, which can you imagine what a heart-wrenching experience for a mother to watch her son slowly dying on a cross, but Mary was there. And then Luke tells us that Mary was also with the disciples after the resurrection. The scene is the disciples after Christ's ascension returning to Jerusalem where he had told them to go and to wait. Acts 1, 
They went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And guess what happens? God graces them once again and pours out his Holy Spirit. We're told that they were filled, they were empowered, a great revival broke out. There were thousands who came to recognize that Jesus, Mary's miracle son, was truly their Joshua, their deliverer. Not a deliverer who was going to take them to a promised piece of geography, but a deliverer for their souls with the promise of an eternal home. And Mary was there for all of that. I mentioned that Mary is recorded as being present at a home where Jesus was once teaching. Uh, here's how Luke records that incident. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Now, I can agree with my Catholic friends that Mary certainly occupies a special place in the history of God's work. She was truly graced by God and what God in grace chose to do in and through her is beautiful and astounding. However, I also think it's fair to say that what God did uniquely in Mary was in many ways a foreshadowing of what he was preparing to do for all who would follow in Mary's footsteps. Not following her in terms of worshiping or venerating a young woman who was simply chosen in an act of grace, but following her in that simple act of faith, to trust God to do in her what seemed impossible. I mean, you look at Jesus' words here, and you'll see that he doesn't venerate Mary. Rather, he points to the kind of faith that hears God's word, like Mary heard the angel, like Marie heard that inner prompting, and then acts. He says, that's my mother, that's my brother, those are my sisters, the people who hear me and act. On the day of Pentecost, as Mary was praying in the upper room with the other disciples of Jesus, I think that what they experienced was in many ways parallel to what, Jesus, what Mary had experienced years before. God's Spirit overshadowed them, and he birthed in them, he filled them with a new life. He gave birth to a new people, God's people, filled with his spirit. And think about who was there. Think about the people that were graced that day. You had people like Thomas the doubter, Peter the coward, Mary the uneducated, that impoverished village girl. And what set them apart was not their stellar performance it wasn't their perfect teeth. It wasn't even their unwavering faith because there were doubters among them. What put them in line to be graced was their willingness, despite all of their weakness, to wait on God and to receive his grace. And that's exactly what he is still doing today. He offers the most unexpected thing to the most undeserving people like me and like you. He offers grace. 
This is the week that's leading up to Easter. And uh, I hope that for most of us, Easter is a celebration of the life that we've found in Jesus. But maybe there's some of you here online who are still just watching all of this from a distance. And maybe you think you're just not good enough, not worthy enough for God to notice you, to want you, to want to pour his grace out on you. Well, God didn't send his son to us because we deserved him. He sent his son because we desperately need him. And I just say, if you need God, he is eager and waiting and willing to grace you with his spirit. And receiving that grace is simple. It's a gift. It's also costly. For Mary, it simply meant saying yes. There were hard things that came with that, but I guarantee you when Mary saw the risen Christ, there were no regrets. Saying yes to Jesus means that we have to admit that we need him. And then we ask him to fill us with his life, to help us to follow him, to do whatever it is that he asks us to do. We're going to end this morning with something a little different. I've always been fascinated by the story of the women in the garden Easter morning. To me, it has always been one of the great evidences of the authenticity of the gospel account because in a time and a place that was an entirely male-dominated culture, one of the most significant things, the most significant thing that would lead to the beginning of the church, the first ones that are recorded as, as having witnessed the risen Christ, the ones who delivered the first news that he is risen, weren't men. It wasn't his disciples. It was women. God chose to make them the ones who would be the first heralds of the resurrection. Rebecca Small, someone I've gotten to know in the last year or so, uh, Rebecca specializes in telling the stories of women in the Bible. And many of our women have seen her presentations, and I kept hearing great reviews about them. And so I had an idea. I, I called Rebecca oh, months ago now. And I asked her if she'd ever written about the experience of the women at Easter. And she told me she thought about it, but she hadn't yet. So I asked if she would consider doing it for Easter. And she agreed. And uh, so with Rebecca's help, I, I want to invite you to look through the eyes of Mary as we reflect this week, Passion Week, on the meaning of Easter. This morning, being Palm Sunday, we're going to give you just a little glimpse of the triumphal entry through Mary's eyes. Friday night, we have our Good Friday service at 7 o'clock. We're going to sing together, we're going to worship, we're going to pray, we're going to take communion, but we're also going to again look at the crucifixion through Mary's eyes. And then next Sunday, Easter Sunday morning, we are going to look beyond the cross to the glory of the risen Christ. From that first angelic visit until the Spirit's outpouring at Pentecost, there was much that Mary treasured in her heart. So I would like to invite you now on Easter week to journey with me as we explore Mary's treasure.
The events that began four days before Passover that memorable year are a blur of paradoxes. But then my whole life has been full of unexpected anomalies. I remember quite clearly the day the angel startled me with his presence. That's been many years ago now. He called me the highly favored one. And certainly I was. But I had no idea what all that would entail, nor what difficulties I would face as the mother of the Messiah. I had been told that he would be great and would be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God would give him the throne of his father, David, and he would reign over Israel forever. Such glorious promises. How could there be anything but joy upon joy? It was all we had ever hoped for. And yet, from the time of Yeshua's birth, I began to wonder and even fear what this journey might hold for me and for my son. We had observed many Passover celebrations together over the years, but this one would be, well, of all the events in my life, the most unexpected. Though, looking back, perhaps it shouldn't have been. On that first day of Passover week, my son instructed his men to bring him an unbroken colt. Why unbroken, I wondered. Don't you want the mother donkey? I restrained my motherly urge to correct. Too many times in the past I had tried to manage him. The colt never once balked as his disciples covered its back with their cloaks and Yeshua got astride. Why did it always leave me shaking my head in wonder? We followed as he proceeded down the Mount of Olives toward Jerusalem. I stopped short as those thrilling words of Zechariah the prophet came to mind. Behold, your king comes to you, lowly and riding on a donkey, the foal of a donkey. Another prophecy he was fulfilling, and so specifically, I was very thankful I had held my tongue. A king entering the capital city on a donkey was a symbol that he came in peace. Of course, that's what this day was about. The high king from heaven offering peace to his people. A crowd had already gathered, mostly children at first, who had followed the disciples leading the colt. Gaining momentum, the crowd swelled, sweeping us along as we descended into the Kidron Valley. Some cut branches off bordering date palms and threw them down ahead of him. Another symbol of peace in a royal reception. Others cast their outer garments on the path to carpet his way with their loyal allegiance. Someone called out, Hosanna to the son of David! Soon the whole throng was caught up in the excitement of the moment, dancing and chanting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna to the son of David! My heart leapt for joy. At last, my son was receiving the acclaim he deserves. He was finally allowing the multitudes to proclaim him as their Messiah and King. How many times had he said, my time has not yet come, instructing people to 
not tell anyone after he had already done an astounding miracle. But now, this glorious day of triumph had finally come. As we made our way up to the Eastern Gate, that arduous climb to the city, one of our religious leaders shouted above the din, Teacher, rebuke your disciples! Suddenly, the celebratory atmosphere clouded over, thick with tension. Standing stiff and impassable in the roadway, a grim, angry resistance ground the triumphant procession to a halt. Though the chanting continued unabated, growing louder with a hint of revolution creeping into its tone. With hard faces, our own leaders spat out the order, command these to be silent. These men, who had taught us all our lives to watch and wait for Messiah, refused to acknowledge who Yeshua was. They demanded that he denounce the praises of the multitude and quell this delusion of the ignorant populace. Fear gripped my heart with its icy fingers and a chill ran through me. But Yeshua, boldly defying their demands, unflinchingly declared that if the people refrained from shouting of his kingly rights, the very stones along the roadside would take up voice for them. Quoting the Psalms, he chided them, asking if they'd never read the scripture that says, out of the mouths of infants and babes, God has ordained praise. The children giggled and clapped and the crowd erupted with cheering, but our rulers their eyes narrowed like a panther stalking a choice lamb. Hatred sprang into their glare. We continued on, wending our way through the narrow streets of Jerusalem amid a sea of humanity. The shouts deafening as they echoed off the city walls and cobblestone streets. When we arrived at last at the Temple Mount, this highest point overlooking the city, Yeshua had turned to gaze upon Jerusalem. Tears welled up in his eyes as he lamented, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only you had known the day of your visitation that would have brought you peace. However, his melancholy could not squelch our excitement and enthusiasm. Some were healed that afternoon on the Temple Mount I loved to watch this. I had seen it many times before. His gentle touch, his tender compassion, his untiring patience. I wish you could have seen it. There were times when my son seemed just like us, but then there were other times when I knew he was from another world, showing us what our world should look like Indeed, what we all long for our world to be. As I lay down to sleep that night, my own heart quivered with joy at the anticipation of this moment. My son ushered in as king. It had been decreed by God long ages ago, and nothing can thwart God's plan. Yeshua is the high king from heaven, regardless of who attempts to stand in his way. Hadn't he proven that several times over when enraged men had sought to kill him? 
Yet somehow, he had always managed to walk right through the angry mob. I saw it happen, even in our own hometown. No, nothing and no one will be able to stop his kingdom. Yeshua will reign forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This I knew, but how it would come about, I could never have guessed. Things don't always unfold the way we want them to. And when they don't, I've had to ask myself, am I willing for Yeshua to be king on his terms, according to his plan? Or am I only willing to let him be king on my terms? It's a thought-provoking question, isn't it? But that night, I fell asleep with an expectant smile on my lips, never dreaming of the nightmare that was about to overtake.